KPBS On Demand is supported by Pacific Arts Movement's 2021 San Diego Asian Film Festival, October 28th through November 6th, showcasing over 130 films and honoring Asian and Asian American filmmakers. For tickets and information, go to sdaff.org. From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the public radio series that features true stories from American service members told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnell. Today is split between two conversations. They're about many things, but they share the theme of protecting others and how that relates to one's identity as a veteran or service member. In the second half of today's show, we're gonna be talking with two members of Veterans Respond, but first up, we're with writer and active duty Air Force officer, Matthew Kamatsu, who somehow manages to serve in the Alaska Air National Guard, lead creative writing workshops, and get his writing published in places like the New York Times. It's a pretty packed episode for the hour we have together, so we'll get right to it. Here's Matt. So Matthew Kamatsu, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming. Thanks for having me, man. Great to be here. Why don't you start us off by talking to us about where you were in life and what led to your decision to join the service? Yeah, so got to go all the way back to when I was nine years old. So I'm doing the math right now. That's uh, 31 years ago. Like every other kid that year, I saw Top Gun. And that was all the talk of the neighborhood about how we're all going to be fighter pilots. And for some of us, it stuck. And for me, it, it, it certainly did. And had a... Uh, I had an uncle who had flown uh, as a fighter pilot for quite some time and ended up having a conversation with him. And he told me I didn't want to be a Navy pilot like Maverick, but I wanted to be an Air Force pilot. And if if I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot, I needed to go to the Air Force Academy. So that was the the true beginning of my entrance to the service. Can you talk to us about what the Academy was like for you? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was... Uh, uh, boy, I think the best way to put it is, uh, the, the Academy and I were incompatible with each other, uh, but we made it work. Um, I didn't take very well to the military side of things, surprisingly enough, and, uh, that made things a little bit difficult for me, but I will definitely say, given a long enough view that I, uh, I appreciate what the Academy did for me and the opportunities it set me up for. It is not a, a four-year period of my life that I would choose to relive again. And that's interesting to me because to pursue a single-minded goal from the age of nine uh, to become a fighter pilot and then to run up against a wall of being incompatible with authoritarianism, how did you not kind of know that about your, your psyche? Or was it the obsession with the character of Maverick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. I actually, I knew early on that I had, I had chosen poorly. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there's something to the way that I was raised, which um, you just, you never quit. That was not something that my father ever uh, allowed me to do or, or taught me. And, you know, I needed to learn that lesson pretty early on because I discovered, you know, within my first year of being there that I, it turns out I get motion sick when I fly. Within, I think it was either my first or second flight, I got violently ill in the cockpit and it was uh, sort of an epiphany uh, when we hit the ground that maybe this fighter pilot thing uh, was not going to be as easy as I thought it was going to be. And uh, it was, it, you know, it's, it's hard to experience something like that and realize that the whole 
foundation from which you have built your, your current life is crumbling before your very eyes. Maybe fighter pilot wasn't necessarily in the cards. So, you know, what now? Well, what now is don't quit. <laughs> I, I think I just went into defensive mode in terms of that basic survival instinct, not quitting, just hang on. Something will work itself out. Yeah. But, you know, I also think there's something to be said too for being 19 years old and you're really no different from any other 19 year old. You don't know what's going to happen three years from now when you graduate college. You don't know what job you're going to have. Hell, I mean, you may not even know what your major is going to be at that point. You know, I think some of it is due to the military experience, but some of it is due to just that, that idea of being young and sort of having time to burn. <laughs> I do miss the malleability of youth and having a lot of room ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. A little different now, now that I have a family and house and all that kind of stuff. My name is Matthew Kamatsu, and this is Because I Don't Say Love. One, the Japanese have no native word for kiss. It exists only as kisu, a pidgin imitation written as two meaningless syllabic characters of the katakana text. Two, when I think of whether or not my father kissed me growing up, I see a boy always post-corporal punishment. He stands at the foot of his parents' cramped bedroom and sobs in the chest of his father, a Japanese immigrant. The father still holds the wooden spoon as he kisses the boy's jet black bowl cut and prays out loud. The memory is grayed with repetition, the transgression lost to me now. Three, 18 and hiding in the bathroom from my drill instructors, I open a letter from my dad. The sound of paper on paper gives way to his voice in the handwritten note, the long since conquered pronunciation of the letter R, and the strange cadence that emerges when he allows his speech to reveal emotion. I'm sorry I was so hard on you. Please forgive me. Four. Home from Iraq, I greet him with a one-armed man embrace, simultaneous hug and handshake. If amid this, he lifts his chin to graze his lips against my cheek. I will feel his regret when I grimace. You are still my son, he seems to say. If I were to speak, I would tell him, you don't need my forgiveness. Five. In the wedding photo, my wife and I face each other on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. There is a single flower tucked into the curls pressed behind her ear. My father stands between and beyond us, I can still feel the weight of his hand upon my shoulder, see his dark suit and the blurred white of Jen's dress. I can taste saline at the corners of my mouth. Six, someday, I tell Jen, we will have a son and he will grow up strong, tested, challenged, prepared. Because I do not say loved, her response erupts with anger and my words build upon hers until we rail to a stalemate. I'm afraid of the father you will be, she says. And I respond the only way I can. The way I was raised has allowed me to become the man I am. Seven. Mission first, family second, Afghanistan four times, Iraq twice, Africa two commendation medals, one with valor, bronze star, bronze star with valor. The little Afghan girl punished by her father with hot cooking oil, comatose in the back of our helicopter as we struggle to keep her alive. Eight, my son arrives defiant, yanked from an incision and fisting a tiny bite of umbilical. 
I do not see the head misshapen from the birth canal, nor do I fixate on the purple stuff of life now drying in the antiseptic operating room. I forget the heartbeat that disappeared during contractions and the necessity of an emergency cesarean. After the inhale and the earthy wail that rings through sterile air, after Apgar blood type pinpricks and scale tables, after asking and waiting and asking again, I open my shirt, unwrap Finnegan Shichiro Komatsu, and hold him to my chest. Nine, the drumbeat of a helicopter rotor, the percussion of a 50 cal machine gun, the pressure wave of an explosion, all heartbeats of a war that beckons. My father accepts my son with shoulders hunched and arms ready. He cranes his neck forward to look into his grandson's dark eyes. Finn contorts and wails. After a few moments, my father places him back in my arms. I press my lips to Finn's head. And when I wonder whether I too will wield the spoon someday, I feel his weight. Well, you didn't quit the academy, and you ended up joining the Air Force eventually, but in a different capacity. Could you talk about what that was and how you came to it? Right. So even going into my senior year, uh, our first class year, as we called it there, I really didn't know what the future was going to hold. And uh, I had really low military marks, okay academics, and so I, I didn't really foresee myself having the opportunity to have a choice at a, at a desirable job. So there was a call for applicants for something called the Office of Special Investigations, and uh, it's a really selective program. And due to how selective it was, I really didn't give myself a snowball's chance at making it through the process. And so I put my package in to become a special agent. <laughs> Surprisingly enough to both me and pretty much everybody who knew me, they picked me up. So I was one of six cadets that were picked up from my class that year to become OSI special agents. And that is uh, what I became on June 2nd, 1999, when I commissioned as a second lieutenant. And could you tell our listeners what the OSI was like back then and how it's changed over your years? When you did initially join, where was this in relation to 9-11, as that's kind of the pivot mark for a lot of change and evolution in the service? So it was just a little over two years until 9-11. And, you know, it didn't really feel like much was going on in the world back then. So when I joined OSI, you know, I, I really had this idea in my head that I was going to do my time. You know, you have a five-year commitment uh, once you graduated from the academy at that point. And I figured I'd do my time, be an agent, and use it as a uh, stepping stone to go to a, a civilian three-letter agency um, like the FBI or the DEA or Customs or something like that. And uh, it's a largely a criminal investigative uh, organization for within the Air Force. So they sent me to my first duty station, which was at Altus Air Force Base, Oklahoma. And if you're asking yourself where Altus is or was, uh, I was asking myself the same thing. It's in the southwest corner. And so I did two years there at a sleepy base. 
And then right before 9-11, I joined a unit called the Anti-Terrorism Specialty Team, which no longer exists in OSI. You know, the organization was stood up after Cobar Towers to be able to provide the Air Force with uh, specialized uh, anti-terrorism capabilities, surveillance, surveillance detection, human intelligence, all the traditional indicators, pre-attack indicators. You know, we were supposed to be the guys that picked up those warning signs and, and kept bases safe. But, you know, you got to remember back then there was uh, rotational presence in the Balkans and then in Southwest Asia, but it was not by any means a quote-unquote combat type environment. When 9-11 hit, you know, the nature of OSI and the AST uh, changed fundamentally. And over the next couple of years, we were definitely uh, in the thick of it. And as part of the first generation of an anti-terrorism unit in the Air Force, at least, to kind of be deployed in country during a war, during an invasion, what was the situation and how were you guys equipped or the opposite of equipped to deal with what you were being presented with? We were not very well prepared for the mission that we found ourselves facing. Afghanistan was, strangely enough, kind of a train up for Iraq, really. When I, I went to Bagram in uh, the summer of 2002 and left um, at the turn of that, of that year, there was really nothing going on. We were starting to pick up early indications of Taliban resurgence, uh, Hezb Islami Gulbuddin or HIG, HIG. And, uh, but other than that, we, we spent a lot of time outside the wire working source networks and collecting information, and it didn't feel that threatening. I went to Iraq in November of 2003, and at that point, the insurgency was blazing white hot at that point. So when I got into country, I think they had just shut down uh, two UH-60s outside of Mosul, their IEDs going off all the time. Uh, soldiers across the coalition were dying on a daily basis. I mean, my first morning after getting off the, the airplane at Balad, I was woken to the sound of a firefight um, somewhere, you know, outside the base perimeter. You know, it was definitely a wake-up call in terms of what we had to be ready to do. We'd prepared previously for these rotational-type environments, working with military counterparts and drinking a lot of chai and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And going to Afghanistan and then Iraq, you know, where it's a, it's a very kinetic environment, you have to walk that fine balance between force protection and accomplishing the mission, which requires you to get out there and expose yourself to risk. It was, uh, it was certainly demanding. I mean, I was lucky enough to never get into anything bad, but we were definitely hanging it out there um, when we were working in those days. We didn't have radios to call for backup, and, you know, we had a very small team that we were working, very low profile and small arms, and that was pretty much it. So if something bad would have happened, really the plan was for us to get on the sat phone and, and try to call an operating center somewhere and, and get some help. And chances were really good by, by the time help arrived, it was going to be too late anyways. You go to war with the Air Force you have, not the one you want. Right. But, uh, you know, I will say to OSI's credit, they learned some pretty hard lessons in those early days, and they've changed the way that they do business uh, pretty radically now. Hi, my name is Matthew Kamatsu, and I'll be reading When We Played. One, when we played war as boys, we never died. Dead was a reset button, a do-over, a quarrel over who killed who. Maybe we dropped our toy guns and crumpled on the grass clutching with grunts like gutshot movie soldiers, grimaced and closed our eyes, but only just. 
Through the curves of a squint, a summer sky, blue and infinite, heavy with the raucous shouts of the other boys. Two. All those close calls, that time in Afghanistan, the SUV drove past the white rocks and into the red ones, white all right, red as dead, a local in the backseat, jabbering jib. What did he say? Translator. He say, we are driving into minefield. Three. When we played war as men, the wounded on their backs, they called our names, their mother's names, the names of all gods, past and present. We crammed wads of cloth, into gaping cavities, wet organs slipped past blind fingers, flesh grew purple, distal to the tourniquet. We clenched fists, held hands as warmth fled, pounded on sullen chests. Four. Baghdad to Balad on route Tampa, my little white truck passing another army supply convoy. A semi-rig swerved out and sideswiped the truck pushed until he pinned me to the medium, my driver frozen to the wheel by the sound of metal crumpling, soldier atop the rig swiveled the 50 cal at my head. I waved a bright orange flag over the dashboard, a last ditch, ollie ollie income free. The semi backed off, a breathless release. It's all fun and games until some soldier mistakes you for a suicide bomber. The dead did not rise of their own accord. We lifted them on stretchers, and they ascended in body bags. Silent flags over sightless eyes. And in the end, it was we, the living, who took a knee in front of the soldier's cross made of boots, rifle, and helmet. It was we, the living, who stood. Six. Medevac alert next to the piss tubes at Tarankout, Afghanistan. The radio erupted. I ran underneath the whooping rotors into the helicopter cabin. The Black Knight exhaled, then inhaled. The helicopter lifted off. Flew through hazy darkness, arrived overhead the LZ. Down there, two patients. The pilot rolled the dice, pressed a yoke, and 176 pounds of flesh and blood plunged eight tons of metal and fuel toward the ground. The LZ responded and unleashed a mushroom envelope of dust. Nothing to see but faint stars through the spinning rotor. The ground rushed up all wrong. It moved not front back but left right, I thought. Five knot left drift. The wheels hit the ground. Kilo rollover. Alarms and men screamed. Aussie medic tumbled across the cabin, pinned my face to the rotor. Rotors struck and struck and struck the ground. Night vision goggles. I could see it all. Explosions of light arcing across the ground. Seven. Paths of intersection. How close was close? Close enough to call, not close enough to conclude. Our hands still cool from the touch of the lifeless life inexplicably dragged us forward. And when it placed us on the brink, it offered what we thought was our epitaph. This is it. Eight. The helo tipped upright, bounced, and settled. Pilot pulled the lever and the amputated rotors screeched to a stop. Lips drawn, eyes narrowed into a grimace, I tasted shock. Breathed dust in, then out. A brief pause. A small quiet. A call from the grass of youth. Do over.
We're back with our guest, Air Force officer and writer, Matthew Kamatsu. Having served in both Afghanistan and Iraq, I'm reminded of this kind of iconic scene in the book and in the HBO series, Generation Kill, where several senior enlisted Marines are sitting around in Iraq during the initial invasion, reminiscing about Afghanistan almost fondly in comparison to what they were encountering in Iraq. I think a lot of people uh, stateside conflate the two. Um, they, they see the same stock footage of the same helicopters going off. But from a service angle, it was such different stories. So could you just encapsulate, you know, in brief, if possible, what the differences between the two as wars go? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> I know that's a huge question, but just the nature. Right. Yeah, sure. Well, on a personal level, the, the first difference that I noticed was just the pace and the kinetic nature of things. So Afghanistan in those days was very quiet. There's still that sense of idealism and purpose, and it felt as if we were doing something good. And then, you know, it felt like the people wanted us there. I don't think they wanted us there forever folks that I was dealing with anyways were, were largely pretty happy that we were there. Now I will say that if I had gone uh, 50 miles to the east uh, and deeper into the, into the Hindu Kush, we would have had a much different uh, reaction from the locals. And in Iraq, it was pretty obvious that they didn't want us there because they were blowing us up and attacking our bases and, and killing us. Pretty radical shift from 2002 Afghanistan to Iraq in 2003, 2004. The landscape and the people, I think there's a really, 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 really huge difference between an Iraqi and an Afghan. And you can be an Afghan and be one of uh, numerous ethnicities where we want to treat them monolithically. Um, you know, there's centuries of conflict between the Hazara and Tajiks and Pashtun, blood feuds that extend hundreds of years. So there's a real interesting contrast between Afghanistan and Iraq where um, in Iraq, you're, you're dealing with uh, the Sunni versus Shia dynamic, which really wasn't present in Afghanistan uh, when I was there like it was in, in Iraq. And then they're Arabs, so it's, you know, a completely different country, completely different people. It's kind of like uh, people can't tell the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan. It's like, can you tell the difference between an apple and an orange? Because that's what the two are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm transitioning here into your writing. One of the stories you read first today and in, in other pieces you've written, you talk about your Japanese heritage. That made me curious to ask if being half Japanese played any role in your decision to join the military or how you felt as uh, an Air Force officer while you were in. Yeah, I think that's something that I've discovered later in my career as opposed to earlier. I was, you know, like a lot of us, who are either first or second generation. Um, my father is still Japanese citizen, and so I'm, I'm really first generation Japanese American, as are my two sisters. You know, we were raised to assimilate, and so we were brought up to be all American kids. You took your shoes off at the front door, which seemed weird to our neighbors, but you know, we ate cereal for breakfast, and we had Japanese rice at you know most dinners somehow as a as like a side dish but I didn't know that gohan was the Japanese word for rice 
my cultural aspect is something that I've sort of had to build on my own and rediscover as I've gotten older. You know, I'd say I, I spend a lot more time now as I, I just passed, oh gosh, I just passed 18 years of service now. I spend a lot more time now thinking about how um, my ethnicity and my culture um, intersect with my military experience. And as I go back and sort of interrogate my past, I'm turning all these stones over and finding surprising things underneath. There's certainly an aspect of discovery and recovery to that that is especially rewarding. Well, and it comes back into play at a great time because now you can use it for your writing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think one of the nice things about memoir is that being a little bit older when you're doing it uh, means you're a little bit more removed from the experiences. And I think you look at those experiences and see things uh, that you may not have seen even a couple of you know, a year or two down the road. Yeah, now's a good time to be introspective for sure. (laughs) It's my midlife crisis. (laughs) It's better than buying a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, there's that. I just, I've decided to write a book instead. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see which one can upset the family more. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about how writing entered your life and where that came to the surface as something you were going to do. I had always sort of dabbled, but I just never really finished anything. You know, when you read the typical military nonfiction book, I mean, what do you get, right? You get the war as hell stuff. You get the blood, guts, and glory. And so if you read enough of that stuff, you're going to think that is the way that you write about war. That's what I read. And because my narrative didn't really fit into that, I, I just naturally figured, well, I don't really have a story worth telling. On my uh, 2012 deployment to Afghanistan, I was involved in an incident at Bastion Air Base. There were 15 Taliban who penetrated the wire there and wreaked all kinds of havoc across the other side of base. And the Marines had called us asking if we could uh, provide any help. So I, I drove across the runway. I mean, the base is in full lockdown. Drove across the runway with uh, three PJs. I thought we were just going to roll up on some mortars or some rockets that had hit a hangar, you know, kind of your typical mass casualty type incident. And Instead, we walked into a, a five-hour firefight. It was after that night had concluded, I, I had this feeling like, oh, all right, I finally got that story that sort of fits. You know, there were things blowing up and uh, people shooting guns and my life was at risk. And this is probably worth writing about. I ended up writing that story, finally getting it down. I mean, it took me close to a year to write it. Ended up publishing with uh, Jim Dow over at the New York Times at his At War blog. When I saw that thing go live, it had been more than a year since the Bastion attack. And just seeing that kind of electrified me. And I had one of those aha moments where I realized that this writing thing was something that I wanted to, to keep on doing and get better at and figure out how to do. So I applied for a MFA program through the University of Alaska. It's a three-year low residency program, and it's been incredible. And I will graduate here this summer. And also on your way to graduating your MFA program, you brought a writing workshop to Alaska, right? All right. Yeah. So the, uh, the writing workshop, Danger Close Alaska, uh, has been one of those unforeseen benefits out of the, out of the writing program that I've done, the MFA program. Uh, there's a practicum requirement, which means that you got to uh, expend, you know, a set number of hours doing something practical with your education, uh, as soon as I found out about it, I, I really knew what I wanted to do immediately. Uh, Alaska has, if not the highest, one of the highest veteran percentages in the country. 
and uh, there had never been a veterans writing uh, workshop up here. And so uh, I realized that if it hadn't happened already, that probably wasn't going to happen unless somebody did it. And so I decided that person would be me. We did it in 2016. We brought up uh, Ben Bush and Elliot Ackerman and then brought up Brian Kastner again uh, in February of this year. So we've We've done it for two years in a row now, and it's been just a, a remarkable experience of working with uh, Alaska Humanities Forum and 49 writers, and just one of those really rewarding aspects of trying to be a good literary citizen. You talked earlier about how stumbling kind of into a, a firefight gave you the permission to write about your own military experience. What have you witnessed as a teacher with these multi-generational vets you've been working with in Alaska that the writing workshop gives them by way of permission? What have they responded with? Because I'm assuming they're not pursuing this necessarily as full-time as you are prior to being in the workshop. I mean, it's just been really, really varied. You know, our, our first year, I was very ambitious, and we put 12 veterans and 12 civilians in a room, and we smoked them for two days straight with craft and workshop. And we did the same thing this year on a more limited basis down in Juneau. And if anything, the biggest thing that I've seen happen is a sense of community, which is, I think, one of the things that is most important to me. You know, I had one Vietnam vet after last year's Danger Close come up and say that after spending the two days in the workshop, he felt like he finally had the perspective and the skill to tackle some of his own experiences. And then what was really neat is that his boss talked to me this year and said that since the workshop that this guy took last year, that his writing has just uh, taken off in leaps and bounds. I think it's about giving yourself permission as opposed to your experiences giving you permission. And that's one thing that I always try and harp on when, when we do these types of things is that there's always a story there and it's just how you choose to tell it. We're winding down here, but I wanted to ask you, what has becoming a father changed about being in the military? You're no longer in the Air Force. You're serving in the Air National Guard in Alaska. But it's all part of a very long career heading towards, you said, 18 years? I'm sorry? Yeah, just past 18. What's changed about that, being in the service and being a parent? And how has being a parent influenced your writing when you look at writing about your service? Well... Uh, it's a very relevant question because that is actually sort of the through line to my memoir as it stands right now. There's one thing to being in the military and not having any attachments and doing dangerous things and exposing yourself to risk. And then it's a whole other thing to continue to do that when you have a family. I think, if anything, my memoir has become a living record, if you will, in the case of the unlikely event of something bad happening to me, that I would like for there to be some kind of record of what I did and why my life turned out this way for my son, should he choose or not choose to, to follow in my footsteps. Fatherhood affects your service because it forces you to be or it has for me anyways, it's forced me to be introspective about the choices that I make, the deployments I do or do not go on, the amount of risk I'm willing to assume personally. All those things have to be weighed and measured now uh, as a father. And, you know, I think one of the particular ironies of this is that despite that fact, I would, if given the choice to, to go back into the breach with my men, I would do so in a heartbeat, even with a house and two cars and a wife and a kid.
It's one of those cruel ironies of being uh, a serviceman and uh, a father and a husband. The last question I like to ask all of our contributors is, if you were to, I know you're still in the service, but nonetheless, if you were to encounter a young man or woman who is about to term out uh, in, say, a couple of weeks, and you could give them a piece of advice, what do you think it would be now? <sighs> well, first I give them the recruiting uh, pitch and say, hey, you want to go guard? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think what I would tell them is read. Read the experiences of other people who have already uh, walked that path before you. And some of them have walked it, some of them have run it, and, and some have not had the luxury of, of doing either of those things of their own accord. So uh, read those things and put them down uh, on the page. I think that, that would be my, my advice to those guys is um, no experience is too small to, uh, to have value. Matthew Kamatsu, thanks so much for joining us and coming. I appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. It's been a pleasure to be here. somebody who watched the news during the final days of the Obama presidency in late 2016 and early 2017, or someone who frequented the social media platform where your friends could shoot news at your eyeballs, you watched the dramatic stand-down between members of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and their allies against private security forces and sheriff's deputies and all the other representatives of energy transfer partners. You also probably witnessed the dramatic arrival of U.S. veterans to the standoff and their frontline role in opposing what they saw as an infringement on Native peoples' rights and environmental preservation over corporate interests. Now, a lot of people came together to make that protest as effective as it was, but I don't think it's controversial to say that the role veterans played in the standoff was instrumental to its outcome, at least until President Trump came into power and gave the go-ahead on construction. That moment was an important demonstration of the power veterans play in social activism, resistance, and the political process. And I'll go even further and say personally, as I watched events unfold, I was obsessed with what would happen if a shot was fired on the pipeline side and if that bullet or tear gas canister hit one of those veterans. Because no matter what came after that moment, I believed with my whole heart it would have massive repercussions. And I'm also willing to bet the veterans who were standing there in the cold facing all that ordinance pointed at them knew that too. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And I don't have to hypothesize any further about what it means because I have two veterans in the studio with me today who were there themselves. Members of Veterans Respond, an organization that trains and mobilizes veteran volunteers to areas affected by natural or man-made disasters. Their motto is healing through service. Sean Sullivan, John Nelson, thanks so much for joining us on Incoming. Yeah, cool. Thanks for having us, man. Yes, good to be here. Thank you. So before we get into your work at Standing Rock and going forward with Veterans Respond, why don't you tell us a little bit about what brought you personally to the service? Yeah, for me, I didn't really have much of a noble reason for joining. I was getting ready to get out of high school in the spring. Really didn't have much of a plan. Did not want to go to college at all. You know, I thought I was uh, going to go Kerouac on everybody. And my big plan was to just try and hitchhike around the country and be a vagabond and Fortunately, I had a, a good buddy uh, in high school who told me, hey, I'm joining the Navy. I was like, wow, that's awesome. And he's like, yeah, there's a program uh, where if you have two friends that join together, you can go to boot camp together. It's like, that's really cool. And told my mom about it. And of course, she pushed as hard as she could. And 
within a couple of days, I was talking to a recruiter. Uh, within the month, I had enlisted. And I remember going to find my buddy afterwards. I was like, yeah, I enlisted in the Navy. I'm going, uh, leaving in August. When are you leaving? He's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should enlist. I need to get that taken care of. <laughs> yeah, I got like way too many traffic fines I need to take care of. And so the funny thing is, I joined thinking I'd go with my buddy. And, you know, to this day, you never joined the Navy. <laughs> Sean, what's your story? Both sides of my family um, were military. Um, but me me joining specifically was out of uh, just to challenge myself. I'd gotten my GED. I was pretty much like a burnout. Didn't want to go to, to college, like a traditional college, because it wasn't... I never found school very challenging. I didn't have much uh, authority over me as well, so I started to get into trouble with the law, and I wasn't really going anywhere. So I decided to uh, challenge myself and be someone I didn't think I could be. So that's kind of what brought me to uh, to military service, just because I thought, you know, that's also where I kind of knew I was going to end up as well, uh, because both sides of my family were uh, were service members as well. Mm-hmm. So while the military obviously has a very strict culture, it's also been kind of a social progressive uh, force in terms of uh, opening up to African-American service members before society uh, got rid of Jim Crow, same now with transgender. Um, And so I found that it lends itself to a lot of socially minded active people and progressive people in that way as they're able to kind of change the military it's the tip of the spear of changing their culture. When did you two find social activism or come to it? I consider myself pretty socially aware in terms of, uh, you know, I was always following the news. I felt pretty grounded in my beliefs of what was right and wrong when it came to social issues. Um, but in terms of becoming an activist, uh, which, I mean, even right now, I don't, I don't see myself as an activist, but just going along that line, it really didn't happen until I went out to Standing Rock. Can you tell me about the circumstances that made you aware of the Dakota Access Pipeline stand down on the Sioux Reservation? I knew what was going on in Standing Rock just because of Facebook. I remember it was right after uh, Thanksgiving, that Monday, I woke up one morning, went on my feed and saw the call for uh, veterans to go mobilize in. Uh, you know, I didn't really think much about it. It was... Uh, just this sudden need, like, I've been seeing all the violence going on. I'm a military medic. I can go and help out. And, you know, within 30 minutes of waking up and seeing this, I had already bought a plane ticket to go out there. I felt like it gave me a chance to use my, not only my status as a veteran, but actual my skills as a medic from the military uh, to use it for good outside of what I had done in the military. Sean, how did you come to Standing Rock? Through Veteran Stand, I found out that through social media, uh, reached out for a leadership position. Whenever I become socially aware and socially conscious about these movements, it's kind of, it's, it's been a progression in the Standing Rock movement. It's one of them. It's been a progression by me figuring out what, what benefits and value that I got from the military service and why I succeeded. Socially aware is just asking myself what values I valued in the military. And one of those values was, was serving the community in terms of being able to be a warrior and... What I mean by that is to serve people in the capacity that veterans do. That's interesting. So do you draw a parallel between your military service and activism as kind of more within the same wheelhouse of skills and personality requirements that lend themselves to those two rules, as opposed to going back into the civilian job world, which you know a lot of people coming home do have a struggle with that, especially because it's just such a different cultural change, if, you know, economics aside. In a broader sense, uh, First Nations and Indigenous people 
they stay in ceremony and they also stay in prayer. But in military, we also do ceremony. Like we stay in ceremony. So every day we, we do colors, we raise a flag. There's a ceremony behind that. For a warrior in the Lakota, it's like being a veteran. And one of the most respected positions in Lakota tradition is, is a veteran. They have more people who are veterans. And what I mean by that is more indigenous and First Nations people have served in the veteran community. Right. Well, there was a lot of media coverage of the event from various sources. And, and nowadays, a lot of that media is translated into like 15-second snapshots. It can be aired on social media or, or in sound bites on, on uh, news channels. But could you give us a, a picture in your own words of what it was like for you on the ground uh, during the Standing Rock standoff? You know, any of those 15-second snapshots that appear in your social media feed definitely does not do the actual experience justice. For those who were in the military that didn't go, it, you know, the camp itself felt like an actual military base on a deployment. You know, that direct action in the protests and confrontation with law enforcement, you know, that really only made up a very small fraction of the activities going on in camp. And the rest was um, either ceremony, prayer, and then just regular day-to-day operations. You know, at one point while we were there, pretty sure we had over 10,000 people in that camp and it was running like a city. So, you know, we had all the work that needed to be done, whether it was waste management, cleanup, medical services, uh, running the kitchens, doing construction, chopping wood. There was always work to uh, that needed to be done. And it's hard to convey what that actually looked like to people who weren't there. And how much of direct action protests really wasn't the main uh, main focal point of what was going on in camp. Right. On the organizational side, you mentioned to me after arriving, you had a job pretty quickly designated for you. Is that right? So I went independent. I didn't go with the vet stand movement. I bought my own ticket, rented a car, drove up there and showed up and drove through the gate and asked the gate guard where the medical tent was because I was a, a Navy corpsman, a medic in the military. And so I got there, checked in with the medical tent, started helping out there, and then pretty quickly I got pulled in with a group of veterans who ended up being Veterans Respond now. Mm-hmm. And a big part of our work there was uh, we were doing uh, security operations with the Akichita, which was another security faction there. So, you know, one of the big issues was violent agitators, whether it be paid DAPL uh, contractor employees or you had uh, some more militant people that want to come in and instigate things with law enforcement. A lot of the work I was doing and the people I was working with was to find those people and, um, you know, just general security within the camp. In the role veterans have played in protests going back to World War One, fomenting social change, whether it was for receiving their benefits that they'd been promised and withheld during wars past to Vietnam and now going forward. Unfortunately, a lot of that social change has come from any social group being attacked or hurt by law enforcement, whether it was the civil rights movement or whether it was firing on veterans, like I said, on the aftermath of World War One, What role do you think that Iraq and Afghanistan vets have playing in social movements going forward? And does that concern you, that threat of what will happen the first time a group of veteran protesters are hurt? What do you think that will trigger as a response? You know, one of the uh, one of the things I'm worried about was that Standing Rock and the veterans movement was so special because, you know, at least in my lifetime, something like that's never happened before where you had this mass mobilization of veterans going. And, you know, it kind of took the country by surprise. And it, I'm pretty sure if you had a public opinion poll during that time, 
most of the country would have been on the side of Standing Rock or on the side of the veterans and the activists. Over time, that public opinion definitely dwindled down because of a PR campaign uh, by DAPL and the Sheriff's Department. So I'm kind of worried that, you know, it's going to lose its effect next time there is the big mobilization of veterans. It's not going to galvanize the country the same way that it did. I'm afraid it's only a one-time deal. So, you know, and then with the laws, uh, the anti-protesting laws that they're creating, that's really going to help turn public opinion because uh, it's going to be easier to justify that these veterans deserve what's coming to them, whether it be arrested, charged with felonies, shot with rubber bullets, because they're on the wrong side of the law. It's illegal to do the protesting that they're doing and to a lot of everyday civilians. That's all they need to justify viewing them as the enemy or deserving what happens to them. Yeah, as as Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, our, our image is, is up to our own to decide what we want to use it for. If we remain silent and we allow these injustices and this, this violence at the hands of the state to continue, then us as veterans will be looked at in the future as, as being silent and not being not using our uh, our privilege as veterans and uh, as who we stand in, in the community for, for just causes. We're almost like Vietnam veterans in, in the terms where we're fighting an unjust war for policies that don't seem to help um, rank-and-file Americans. And it seems like the Vietnam veterans, if you look back on how they controlled their images, if you, look, if you ask anybody what they view a, a Vietnam veteran as, some people would say, you know, they're broken, they're, they weren't cared for, they're... Their health isn't as well as it should be, but a lot of the veterans that I've met through this movement are Vietnam veterans who are still continuing to serve, so still controlling their image and what they are viewed as. They weren't allowed the platform to showcase who they could be after the military, whereas veterans from World War II specifically were allowed to come home, they were allowed to buy houses, they were allowed to, quote-unquote, create nuclear families and grow the middle class. I think veterans now are trying to emulate that as well by continuing to serve our community in terms of progressing in the social, the social movements, because we don't see that in, uh, in by our government. You know, also as an obligation of veterans of these wars now, especially on social media, there are kind of two stereotypes or images that are given of veterans. And one is the 22 suicide uh, veterans thing, PTSD, or you have uh, a lot of alt-right veterans groups. So I think uh, what we're trying to do in this movement and what other veterans should kind of be trying to do is convey the different images or personas of what it actually means to be a veteran or what veterans are. Get away from the, not to say that PTSD is an issue, but I think the overwhelming majority of the public just view a lot of veterans as this basket case or just really right and conservative. I think you bring up an interesting point in drawing a parallel to the Vietnam era generation where, you know, the oath taken is to protect and serve against enemies foreign and domestic. And while there's certainly no easy road home when you leave the military, especially for the longer you're in, I think the longer it, it, it can sometimes take to come back home. But in comparison to Vietnam and fighting for just basic social recognition and overcoming the stereotypes that were applied to veterans back then, Afghanistan and Iraq veterans, I hesitate to say have it easier, but, but you're going to get a beer bot for you as opposed to being called a baby killer. Since the veterans card is still a thing, do you feel like now because you don't have to quite stand up for veterans as much as a group, you can apply that to people who are, who are less advantaged? 
Yeah, you you can, but you also get some backlash by those people who just want to tie a ribbon around the old oak tree, and they only want to view veterans as as what they're promoted as on mainstream media. Overwhelmingly, they're lost of limbs, or they need help with the VA. They physically need to get held back into society, whereas a lot of veterans are morally defeated in this service um, that we we we're challenging our morals that we saw in the military. A lot of us feel that we went and served uh, corporate interest overseas, and we continue to embolden the um, the pharmaceutical industries in Afghanistan with with the amount of opium that we bring out of there, and, and we continue to prop up the oil industries in Iraq. So I feel like visually, it's like it's up to us to to make our decision on what we want to be viewed as. And we have to, we have to challenge that. And it's, it's a challenge because a lot of people have seen and a lot of people only want to think of good things and uh, get warm and fuzzy about veterans when in all actuality, there's a huge veteran crisis in this country and, not, and no one really wants to acknowledge it other than veterans right now. Talk to me about Veterans Respond and how the motto Healing Through Service works, how that mechanism functions in your eyes. There was actually something that just evolved organically that... Uh, you know, we were all there and, you know, is a very spiritual experience in terms of just feeling things that haven't filled in a long time uh, since been out of the military in terms of the sense of community, the sense of purpose, the sense of doing noble actions for the greater good. Kind of going back into the tribe mentality of um, being in the military, when you have a lot of these veterans that leave the service and they lose their tribe, and not only do they lose their uh, social and support network, but they're also dealing with their own injuries, whether it be visible or invisible, which a lot of them are invisible. Even if you don't have PTSD, there's a lot of people who are coming out with anxiety, panic disorders, depression, bipolar, a lot of things. It's not just on the PTSD spectrum. And so, you know, we had some of our own members who late at night were, were crying like good tears, just healing tears because of the work they were doing and having that fire in their soul burn again, feeling, giving them that purpose. And, you know, we all felt it and that's what we're trying to channel. And we want to, uh, we want to share that experience with all the other veterans that weren't there, reach out to the person who's really struggling saying, listen, brother or sister, like we got a way for you to help channel that energy or find that focus might not be for everyone, but it was for us and it might be for you. So you know, give it a shot. What do you have to lose? Do you identify in your head and make a connection between that veterans crisis you mentioned that's happening right now and that separation from a sense of service and duty a person loses when they leave the service? I think so, because I, I feel, me personally, that I was morally defeated after going to Iraq because I did two tours. I did a ship's tour, and then I did a squadron tour, and then I actually volunteered to go do... uh a combat tour in Iraq because I wanted to see, you know, what, you know, this war really was because it's a little different sitting on a boat out in the middle of the sea as opposed to... Being a dirt sailor. Being a dirt sailor and seeing actually what's going on. Going uh, going in country and having Subway served to me by somebody from Bangladesh and my laundry done by somebody from Pakistan and security details by 40 and 50-year-old people from Uganda and you see KBR and Halliburton all over the place. It really um, really opened your eyes to why we are over there. We weren't over there to defend freedom. We were over there to prop up corporate interest. And coming home and, and being able to realize that, I was morally defeated. So I feel like these services, specifically Veterans Respond, 
has allowed me the platform to be able to feel like I'm using those skills and the community and the, the people that I've met for a good cause now. It is a way to, to heal. You know, when I got out of the military, I had a job with Google and I could have stayed with Google. And, you know, you ask most people, that probably wouldn't be a good job. But I wasn't, I was still kind of defeated and still hurting and still not understanding why I spent 10 years of my life serving this, this country. And I feel like this is the first time I've actually felt like I'm serving the community and actually like progressing them to do something good. Well, you go so far as to say it that the process of volunteering for organizations like Veterans Respond is kind of like an antidote to the moral injury. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And it's free. That's what's so surprising about this entire thing is that you just have to have the, the community and you have to have the platform and the structure and like-minded people around you just to be able to experience that healing. Because a lot of the times in camp, you're not doing anything difficult. You're working side by side with people, chopping wood, carrying water, cleaning dishes, so you do that day-to-day with people who, who just want to do that with you. That in itself is, is healing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's that small community, that small tribe mentality. And, you, and you, you work along and you pray alongside these people and you do ceremony with these people. That's, that's the healing. That's what being a warrior is and that's what being a veteran is. It's serving, it's serving somebody else and serving their greater good. And, and that in itself is where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And that's the healing I'm experiencing. You know, I want to go as far as to say that the veterans crisis is directly related to the loss of tribe because, you know, we got over 20 million veterans in this country and it's a very multifaceted problem. But I mean, the loss of tribe definitely is a factor or a contributing factor that compounds with other issues as well. A lot of the issues, it could be um, mental health, whether it be brought on by service or these people were going to be mentally sick regardless of if they went to the military or not it's the addiction to drugs and alcohol dealing with PTSD or again hooked on the painkillers that you're getting from the VA you know it could be the military not preparing you for a career like me personally I uh I was a search and rescue corpsman in the navy and we're operating at the level of a critical care flight paramedic in the civilian world but the Navy themselves don't believe in giving us civilian certifications. So our counterparts in the Air Force and Army who operate at the same skill level of us are coming out being certified where they can go walk on and get a job making 60 grand a year as a flight paramedic. Whereas for many of the search and rescue corpsmen and they get out of the military and they can't even be an EMT out in town making $12 an hour. They'd be lucky if they could be a medical assistant making minimum wage when they were doing the same job as these people in the Army and uh, Air Force coming out as critical care paramedics. So, you know, um, whether it be the job issue or some of them, they just have a hard time transitioning, you know. The military can be easy for some people in the sense that you don't have to think about when you're getting your paycheck. You don't have to think about uh, what schools or classes you have to do or what you have to do for a job. It's, it's told to you. It's structured and laid out. And some people really enjoy that life. And when they get out and go into the civilian world and you know, sometimes they're like, man, that's just way too much thinking and just kind of give up on life. So the loss of the tribe only makes up part of it. But this, I think, is one avenue to bring it back. So tell us what's next after Standing Rock. We're going to take some time to get some structure, but we're also looking forward to some of the, the new resistance camps out there uh, and getting out there and creating some allies and, uh, and showing some unity. Directly on the horizon, at the end of the month, we have a trip planned out to Apache Stronghold in Arizona. That's been going on for a few years now, and basically the background is 
there's an area called Oak Flat, which is comparable to the Mecca or Vatican or Jerusalem for the Apache tribe out there. John McCain's been trying to sell off the land to a foreign mining company for about a decade now because there's a huge copper load uh, center underneath that land. So that's the background behind Apache Stronghold. The difference between that and Standing Rock, though, is they do not do any direct action protests, and it's much more uh, spiritual and ceremony related, and they're very selective of who can come there. One of the issues with Standing Rock was it was open. Anybody could get in and... You know, that led to some issues, especially when people wanted to get violent or militant, where Apache Stronghold, much more selective, so you don't have those issues with violence or run-ins with law enforcement. We're doing that. And then in Memorial Day, Memorial Weekend, we're in the works of trying to um, set up a fundraiser for Semper Fi Fund. We want to do a big Memorial Day community event pay tribute and homage to San Diego natives, military personnel that have been killed in action, do a lot of ceremony, prayer, also bring in a lot of bands, acts, and then use all the proceeds to get back to Semper Fi Fund. That's awesome. Well, Sean Sullivan and John Nelson, the fight goes on. I look forward to following your work. Thanks for being on our show. Yeah, thanks for having us, Justin. Thanks, Justin, for having us. Thanks for the time. A quick update on the Apache situation. If you didn't already know, their land did end up getting sold in a bill sponsored by John McCain and Jeff Flake that was attached to a land package as part of the National Defense Authorization Act used to fund the U.S. military. The irony is not lost on us. Three years later, the Apaches are still fighting to have their land protected. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Pepperpot Corley is our editor and sound designer. At KPBS, Kurt Conan is our audio engineer. John Decker is director of programming. Emily Jankowski is technical director. Lisa Morissette Zapp is operations manager. And Nate John is our morally incorruptible innovation specialist. Music using the scoring of Matt Komatsu's story, When We Played, was by Transatlantic Rage. And on his story, Because I Don't Say Love, you heard from Nagami Yukitaka. Support for Incoming comes from the KPBS Explorer program, the California Arts Council Veterans Initiative in the Arts, Cal Humanities, and supporting members of So Say We All. Learn more about us at our website at sosayweallonline.com. Subscribe to us if you aren't already on Apple Podcasts, and please, please do leave us a review. It helps enormously. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to a premier driving experience with vehicles like the all-new 2021 Sienna Hybrid with its modern design, second-row captain's chairs, and four-zone climate control. To learn more, visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.